Hey, thank you for being with us today. Hey, there is a uh, unwritten rule in churches. Uh, the unwritten rule is if you want people happy and you want them to keep coming back to your church, there's three things that you don't talk about. Uh, first one is you avoid talking about politics, you avoid talking about money, and you avoid talking about hell. So the good news is, is that over the past couple of weeks, there have been some cultural discussions that have had some political undertones to them. Uh, and we're not going to be talking about those today. And in the upcoming messages in the next few weeks, in the next message series, uh, that's when there's going to actually be a lot of discussion about money. However, today we are going to talk about hell. All right. So at this point, if you're ready to hit exit, uh, you're probably the person that actually needs to, to be here and uh, listen into this message. So why did God create hell? This is arguably the toughest question anyone can ask about God. There are people who refuse to attend church and who refuse to even try to understand the gospel because of this question. This is shown in a recent Pew Research poll that shows that more of our neighbors, our friends, and our family members believe in heaven than hell. Seven in, out of ten believe in heaven, but only six out of ten believe in hell. So I believe that's in large part... Because people can't grasp the idea of a good God, one who is good all the time, with the notion that there's the possibility that some, maybe many people, will be destined to an eternity of perpetual suffering and pain. After all, if he's so good, then why would he want anyone to suffer? In the first two messages of this series, Jeff and Chad both made comments in their messages that provide the basis for us to begin to understand why there may be some confusion. First, God is good. However, it's us that isn't good, and it's our hearts that are imperfect and naturally inclined to being mean or evil. And second, God is all-powerful. The problem is, people are trying to compare themselves to God and think about God through the lens of their lives, through their knowledge, their achievements, their power, and their position. That's a form of self-deification. It's a fundamental flaw on how we think about God. We're made in His image, but we're powerless compared, compared to Him. And we're certainly powerless without Him. We're actually made to worship God. So let me take a moment and pull us back, put us back in our place a little bit so we understand how small we actually are and how ignorant we actually are. Our collective human knowledge of the world's oceans is approximately 5%. It's estimated that we know 4 to 5% of the universe, and the brain that you're using right now to understand this message is still a relatively unknown frontier. Think about that for a minute. Thousands and thousands of years of humans exploring our planet, the universe, and our bodies, and we know so little. Yet we know from the Bible that God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. So the title of this message, Why Did God Create Hell, was handed to me as part of this series. But I think the questions that, question that we really should ask is, why wouldn't he create hell? After all, if there's no hell, there can be no reward for a life lived as he commanded. I'll tell you honestly, I don't like messages that talk about hell. I don't like preachers who preach fire and brimstone all the time. 
And in part, it's because this is how I was led to Jesus at a young age. And I rebelled against it as I grew older. It created confusion for me because of all my efforts related to God were about not making mistakes so that I wouldn't go to hell. It's an approach that sets a person up for failure. I wasn't focused on the reward of heaven and I didn't fully understand the grace that God offers. The reality is that most of us don't like to talk about hell and even think about it. There are many assumptions that we make about hell. Some of the assumptions came from how we grew up and where we grew up. So, for example, if you grew up in the South, you're more likely to believe in hell than if you grew up in the North. If you grew up Catholic or Protestant, you're more likely to believe that a person can't get to heaven without believing in Jesus. But we need to talk about hell, even if it makes us just a little bit uncomfortable. Eighty years ago, C.S. Lewis wrote about this in uh, the Screwtape Letters, which is a novel with the theme including the uh, struggle between good and evil and the role of reason in Christian life. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Randy Travis had a country song that I grew up on. It was titled Good Intentions. It has similar sentiment. I hear tell the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And mama, my intentions were the best. So, hell is actually a subject that is found throughout the Bible. Interestingly enough, Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else. And that might create a little bit of confusion because Jesus was the most loving, and yet he talked about hell. But context is important. We need to look at who Jesus was talking to, and what he was talking about when he was talking about hell. When we find Jesus talking about hell, he wasn't trying to scare unbelievers away from hell. He was actually using hell to motivate those who were spiritual to act more spiritual. It wasn't a fear tactic to scare people to heaven, but it was a motivating factor for other people because Jesus didn't want people to go to hell. There's one occasion that Jesus was teaching on hell, and he uses hyperbole to make a point about the dangers of infidelity and adultery. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Notice that line was said twice in Matthew 5, 29-30. So Hebrews would repeat things at least twice to show that it was important. So it's clear that Jesus did not want anybody going to hell. The word that Jesus uses, hell, is translated from the Greek word Gehenna, which refers to an actual place in southwest corner city of Jerusalem known as the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. Centuries before Jesus' birth, uh, there was an evil king, Ahaz, who worshipped the false god Molech, who was known for one of the most horrific acts possible. He was known for child sacrifices. So Jeremiah 731 documents this. They have built pagan shrines in Topheth, the garbage dump in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, and there they burn their sons and daughters in the fire. I have never commanded such a horrible deed. It never even crossed my mind to command such a thing. So for anybody who's ever been around 
you know, an, uh, an incinerator or a pile of garbage that's been burned. If anybody's ever been around death, uh, smelled that, gives you a really good visual and a good understanding of what this place was like. It actually became a garbage dump where they would throw their dead animals, their human waste, their sewage, their bodies of executed criminals. So it's easy to be able to imagine how horrendous that smell was and how that smoldering fire never actually ever went out. So this valley was often referred to as a land of no more. It was a land of no more beauty, no more laughter, no more peace, no more friendship, no more joy, and no more hope. It was a land cut off from the beauty, good, and the life of Jerusalem. When Jesus talked about hell, it wasn't like a dungeon in the basement of heaven where the bad people go. It was a place cut off from everything good. It was cut off from God's presence. Heaven is the presence of God, and hell is the absence of God. It's a horrible place without anything good. It's without the presence of God. So, again, why did God create hell? Well, there's two reasons that we can take from the Bible of why God created hell. The first one is hell exists for God to righteously punish Satan. So unlike our culture putting the devil in a red suit with pitchforks and whispering in your ear, Satan is the embodiment of everything evil. Behind every addiction, abuse, hate, fear, there is Satan. Throughout the New Testament, the devil is called many names. The destroyer, the deceiver, the dark angel, the accuser, the tempter, the wicked one, the thief, and the father of lies. Jesus is clear that Satan has a mission to steal, kill, and destroy. John 10.10 10. He wants to steal your soul. He wants to kill your faith. He wants to destroy your health. He wants to ruin your finances. He wants to obliterate your marriage. He wants to harm your kids. That is the father of lies, and hell is a place for God to righteously punishment, the embodiment of all evil. Revelation 20.10, John writes, Then the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I think that sounds fair, right? The devil, who's the embodiment of all evil, should be punished. The second reason that hell exists for God to righteous, is for God to righteously punish evil. This is challenging, especially in our culture today, because the writer of the Bible describes something called sin. So here's what Paul writes. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Romans 3.23 Sin essentially means that you're missing the mark. The word means in the Greek, hamartia, which means missing the mark. It means doing something that is not God's will. It's not God's best, or it's not in God's plan. Paul describes a standard, and that standard is holiness. When we don't hit that standard, we sin. Our culture doesn't like to use that word today. Matter of fact, we don't talk about it much in all of our, in our churches when it comes to sin, none of us like to talk about it. Some of us don't even want to acknowledge that sin exists. People tend to prefer a God that just looks the other, the other way. So here's what we have to understand. 
It is impossible for God to be holy without being just. Evil must be punished. Think about when you felt when I described a minute ago that hell was created to punish Satan. I guarantee every one of us was okay with that. After all, he's going to get what's coming to him, right? So why wouldn't we be okay with the same conclusion those of us who allow evil to be projected through us? God will righteously punish those of us who have sinned and who are without Christ. This is bad news for unbelievers. But Paul tells us there's good news in the gospel. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Romans 5, 8-9 through So remember, hell is the absence of anything good. It's the absence of God. But without accepting Jesus' death and resurrection, we will be punished by being shut out from God's presence. It might be sound kind of harsh. might sound a little painful. But if we don't accept the reality of hell, we can never appreciate the depth of God's goodness and His grace. So let's look at a story that's in Luke's biography of Jesus that Jesus told. It's a, it's a little bit long, but, it, but it's really actually an interesting story. So Jesus said, There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen who lived each day in luxury. So what do we know about the color? The color of purple is royalty, right? We talk about the linen and the clothes that he was wearing, and, and it, was, it was clothes that only rich people at that time would have been able to afford. So at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, and this is not the Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead. Raised from the dead. The poor man named Lazarus, who was covered with sores, as Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. So in that time, rich people would wash their hands with the bread, then they would take the crumbs of the bread and scraps, they'd throw it out to the dogs. And then the dogs would have those scraps. So essentially what this rich man was doing was Lazarus was those scraps for the dogs. So finally the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried and he went to the place of the dead. There in torment he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. So the rich man was actually in a place called Hades, which is known as the place of the dead or the place of punishment. So the rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have, simple, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted. And you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. For I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. 
The rich man replied, No, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And that's Luke sixteen nineteen through 31 So there's four lessons from this story that Jesus told. First one. The rich man was fully conscious and aware. He had his memory, he was hurting, and he was full of regrets. He was conscious and he was aware of what was going on. Second, the rich man's eternity was irrevocably fixed. He couldn't change it. It was too late. Third, the rich man knew that his suffering was just. He knows it was fair. How do we know that he knows it was fair? Because he complained about the pain but he never complained about the injustice. Then this rich guy in the middle of his agony, middle of his suffering, he knew that his brothers would be there too unless they made a different choice. So finally, the rich man begged and pleaded for someone to help his brothers know the truth, asking for somebody to go and tell his brothers that this place is actually real. So to me, this is the most interesting aspect of this story. The rich man wanted Abraham to send a messenger to his brothers warning them. But I love Abraham's response. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. There is so much foretelling and so much forewarning that God has provided to us, yet some of us just won't listen. So there comes a time when enough is enough and there are no more chances. So we're not good But God is good. He's holy and he is just. And because he is just, he must punish sin. Romans 5, 8 through 9. But God showed us his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. So there's no condemnation for those that are in Jesus. Because of the death of Christ, he paid the price for our sins, satisfying God's justice. And then finally, let's take a look at how Peter shows us the heart of God. The door, the, excuse me, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. But he wants everyone to repent. That's 2 Peter 3.9. So he doesn't want anyone to go to hell. He doesn't want anyone to perish. God is being patient with you. He's been working with you. He's been waiting on you. He's been loving you. He's been reaching out to you. He's been sending people your way. And he's been drawing you by his spirit. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your love and your goodness. Thank you for the justice you provide, Lord. It's hard for us to understand your way sometimes, and we know we're weak without you. Today I ask if there is anyone in the audience who is still pushing you away, keeping you at arm's length, that you soften their heart and give them the courage to accept you as their Lord and Savior. And I ask that you guide them to one of us in the church to help them in their decisions so they may have eternity in your presence. And for those of us who have already made the decision to follow you, 
Please encourage them to be beacons of light spreading your good news. In your name I pray. Amen.